when the angels started healing my body, I was also, you know, I was impressed by the neurosurgeons. I was impressed by this young woman who was operating on me and, you know, drove her BMW and had her, you know, great life. And, and I thought, oh, but does she know that angels help her when she's operating on people? Does she know that there's this energy that supports her? And I was like, I bet she doesn't. <laughs> like, I bet these surgeons don't know this as smart as they are, that there's an assistance from the other side. And, and that kind of made me chuckle a little just to think that life is more mysterious and miraculous than when we're in that 3D material reality. We're just cutting out a lot of the miraculous. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado, and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Now, before I launch into today's episode, I want to thank everyone who's taken the time to leave a review and a rating for Spirit Sisters on your podcast app. As I've mentioned before, that's so very helpful because doing so increases the show's reach and is really the only way to ensure that more people discover it. Thank you also to everyone who's contacted me via my Facebook page or email. I'm always so honoured to hear from you and learn how listening to Spirit Sisters has touched your life. I have no doubt that this episode is going to be one of those that touches your life. My guest today is Trisha Barker, who experienced a profound near-death experience in 1994 when she was 22 in her senior year of university. A point of difference with Trisha's NDE is that it guided her very specifically to her life's work, albeit kicking and screaming at first, to become a teacher in public schools, overseas and at university level. Today she's a professor of English and creative writing in Fort Worth, Texas. The author of the memoir Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival and Transformation, Trisha interviews fellow near-death experiences on her YouTube channel. I had a fantastic time speaking to Trisha, who shares candidly about the trauma that followed her NDE, including a sexual assault she experienced while teaching in South Korea. If this topic is upsetting for you and you're in Australia, please contact 1800respect.org.au or call them 24 hours a day on one 800 737732. If you are in another part of the world, please ensure that you seek out appropriate support services in your area. For now, enjoy my conversation with near-death experiencer Trisha Barker. Hello Trisha and welcome to Spirit Sisters. Oh thank you, I'm so happy to chat with you. I'm so delighted to have you. As we were speaking just before pressing record, your voice is very familiar to me from your own fantastic interviews on your podcast. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today and introduce you to my audience. 
wonderful. I'm I'm always hoping for an Australian audience when all this is over. It's my dream to travel there. <laughs> oh, I feel like you'll love it. <laughs> of course, you're joining us all the way from Texas today. Yes, yes. We have power and water again. <laughs> Yay, my gosh, you've been through a lot. You've been through a lot. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So I'm going to jump right in. Let's begin with your amazing near-death experience. And if you could, Tricia, first please set the scene for us a little. Tell us about what life was like for you back then. You were a university student. What sort of state of mind and, and heart you were in before this accident that absolutely upended your life? Yeah, so I was an agnostic student at college because I had been raised in a very religious home, but there was a lot of neglect and abuse and and just, I didn't look at my parents' lives as uh, religion benefited them in any way. I looked at the society and I was a product of my society here in America. And it showed me that I grew up poor. And if I wanted respect in the society, I needed to be rich. And so I looked at that as safety. So I had a very uh, one-sided you know, three-dimensional view of reality. Everything was about the material. You know, I'd gone into a good university. I was going to study law, but I was also very unhappy because I hadn't processed all those wounds from childhood and I hadn't dealt with it. I was looking at the only answer was success, but then I was sabotaging myself along the way as well with alcohol and drugs and feeling depressed and not understanding this life at all. So it was a mix of things. And I, you know, I, to my credit, you know, academics was always important to me and I did pretty good. <laughs> I stayed on top of things and I was going to get into law school, but I was also suffering emotionally if, if that, so that was the mindset at that time period. And running that race was a way to get my life on track, you know, to get healthier physically. I was going to graduate soon and I signed up for this 10K and I was training really hard for that race. So I was in good physical shape. When I had an accident on the way to run that race, I was devastated. So I knew immediately that my body was really badly broken. I didn't know if I'd walk. I waited in the hospital for 17 hours before anything uh was told to me about what was happening. And I was told I had broken my back in three places and I would need emergency spinal surgery. I didn't have health insurance. And so I waited a long time for a surgeon to take my case, 17 hours without painkillers or anything before I was wheeled in for surgery. And the surgeon who took me in was a young woman and she was like in her thirties and she been on duty for a long time and she had to go home, rest, eat, and then come back and do my surgery. When I signed that form, you know, the form that tells you your chance of death and survival for a certain surgery, it said 17% chance of death. And I remember thinking it should say zero. I'm 22. I'm healthy. You know, like, I don't like 17 you know, percent chance of death, but I had internal injuries and I guess they just never know when they open you up what, what is going to happen and occur. But I thought, oh, well, 17 is low. Went into surgery and I couldn't believe it. The somewhere probably mid-surgery because they had opened up my back and my hip 
and there was a lot of blood. I left my spirit, my spirit body left my physical body and I saw my physical body on that operating table. And I have to say, I knew that wasn't a dream. You know, people always talk about near-death experiences and they go, was that a dream? Why would I be seeing my body and my surgeons if I was dreaming? You know, like this was an added reality. I thought suddenly the whole world had opened up to me and I could see behind the veil, there were angels working through the surgeons. These angels were nine feet tall. They were light bodies. They were sending light energy through the surgeons and into my body, assuring me that I'd walk, that I'd run, that I'd be fine. And I was blown away that they existed. I didn't know if they were aliens, if what they were. I just knew that they were these massive light beings. And that was the first scene of my near-death experience. Do you want me to keep going? Yes, but before you do, I just want to clarify one thing. So that was a car accident, wasn't it, Tricia, that got you there? Yes. Yeah. And I love there's a line in your book before you go on to the next amazing part where you say, your spirit danced a bit of a jig, that's your quote, realising that there's more to existence than the physical. That just seems like such a wondrous moment. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that a little bit as you go into more about the angels and more about what went on to happen, because yours is such an extensive experience. Yeah, so I was joyful, you know, like literally I was so excited as soon as I left my body because the mindset of thinking that we just die with this body and we're just nothing um, scared me, honestly, as an agnostic. And so to realize that my spirit continues after death, I was thrilled. And I only needed that moment. I mean, yes, I have this long, extensive near-death experience, but I, my soul, only needed that first moment to be convinced, you know, like, without a doubt, that was like 100%, this is the truth. You know, I've, I've been living the lie, and now this spiritual reality is the truth behind everything. And I know that it animates everything. It's a part of everything. And I was excited. It gave me such great joy. You know, they say that you sometimes have to die or live as if you're already dead to really live. And I got it in that moment. I was like, this is the greatest gift ever, <laughs> you know, just to know this. And, and so that's why I was so excited. When the angels started healing my body, I was also you know, I was impressed by the neurosurgeons. I was impressed by this young woman who was operating on me and, you know, drove her BMW and had her, you know, great life. And, and I thought, oh, but does she know that angels help her when she's operating on people? Does she know that there's this energy that supports her? And I was like, I bet she doesn't. <laughs> you know, like, I bet these surgeons don't know this as smart as they are, that there's an assistance from the other side. And, and that kind of made me chuckle a little just to think that life is more mysterious and miraculous than, than when when we're in that 3D material reality. We're just cutting out a lot of the miraculous. There's a scene just still on that point of the angels that you saw where they say to you, watch this. Is that right? Yeah. So <laughs> they, they slowed down with words and the words were like printed and it was like, watch this. And those words came at me and then the, the light entered the surgeons, their hands. And I saw that even the tiniest bits of bone fragment would be picked out of my spine so that I'd feel my left leg again and I, I would be fine. But then the monitor flatlined. And then I realized, oh, I was out of body and now that body is dead. And now they're going to have to revive me. 
and I don't want to see this. And so I left that room very quickly and the spirit body can just think and then go there. So I, I went through the walls, saw my stepdad get a candy bar, and that became my verifiable detail. I know that researchers love those details outside of body, but what's more important to me, and I just keep emphasizing this, is that when I verified it later after the near-death experience, my mom said that she and my father were certain I had died at that moment, and they were both on their knees praying, and that's when my stepdad came in with that candy bar and made a joke and offered them some of the candy bar, and I was like, impressed that they knew the moment I died. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, I was dead at that moment. You're right. Your soul was picking up psychically, you know, on the fact that I had left. And so that was important to me for that reason. But the next part of the near-death experience, I transitioned into this night sky and above the city where I'd lived. And it was beautiful and peaceful. There wasn't a moment in my near-death experience where I felt afraid or uncertain. I felt as if some energy was supporting me the whole way and that it was exciting to fly. It was wonderful. And I was still connected to everyone I had known. So it wasn't like I'd lost anything, even if I just barely knew someone. So every time I do one of these interviews, it's like, I know at the end of my life, I'm going to be like, Hey, that was a great interview. I love you. Have a great life. <laughs> you know, like I, literally, you know, it's just going to be like every person you've ever said hi to or connected with, there's just this overflowing sense of goodwill, you know, that we're all connected you know, go have a great life, go be happy, live your dreams, you know, remember your soul, like that's the energy of that oneness is just a goodwill for all people. And it was, it was a wonderful moment. And then a lot of people who have near death experiences talk about a tunnel. My tunnel was really kind of quick. I was just in the night sky. And then I was in the cosmos. And in that place, I floated and I felt deeper peace in the stars. And I felt this light coming towards me, which I knew was an intelligence. Again, I didn't call these things like angels or God. Uh, I called it light beings and a light that is all knowing that was coming towards me. And this light flashed images of my life. And I talk a lot about the one that taught me to be different. And the thing that stuck out was I was judgmental and I judged people based on the way they dressed or what college they went to, or if they went to college even, and that was a mistake. <laughs> like there, in that snobbery or that clickishness, that was a big part of my generation. I'm almost 50, but you know, we're kind of criticized for being that way. You know, there was like the alternative crowd or the, you know, the preppy crowd, or, you know, we always had our clicks. And so I saw that my judgment was foolish because I wasn't looking into the heart of people and I was missing really beautiful, wonderful people by, by judging the outside. And that was not what God wanted. God wanted me to see people for who they are at that heart level. And to see that some people cared about me and I didn't even have an awareness of that at that time, that I was so encased in myself. The way I, I describe it before and after the near-death experience, I felt like a, I was just locked within the physical boundaries of myself and I, I saw no light beyond myself. It was all me. And that's not a good way to live. You know, that that's a pretty sad way to live. And so when I saw that, 
I saw other times in my life when I lived more in touch with nature as a kid, you know, praying and playing with animals and being kind to people. And I saw these moments that were good moments in life, but I wasn't a bad person that was judgmental. <laughs> like that was the main problem that, that needed to be fixed in that life review. And when that was fixed, it was like a part of my soul knew it would never be the same, you know, like that was forever changed, you know, that, that I could see now that kind of that biblical statement of, you know, I was blind, but now I see, or amazing grace where it's mm. like the light just turns on and the near death experience just turns on the light in so many ways that you can never turn it off again. There's, there's no turning it off. And so after that moment, I felt this upgrade, you might call it, or just messages from this light. You know, love is all that matters. It's all that you take with you. Be like a little child. Remind them to go to nature. These were some of the statements that I heard just kind of flowing into me. And then I transitioned into this realm, which a lot of souls, I do medium readings now, and a lot of souls love to stay in the nature-based realm that looks a lot like heaven or a perfect earth because it reminds them of earth. So if people lived very painful lives here. Sometimes they'll create beautiful mansions and beautiful places in this heavenly place, all that they didn't have here. They just, sometimes their souls want to experience that for a while in this blissful place. Well, what I saw was just beautiful flowing grass, not a single blade of grass was dead. Everything was alive with energy. And I thought, oh, this planet is the planet of where things die, but this is where things are eternal. This is where nothing dies, where everything is restored, where everything is beautiful. And my grandfather was kind of proof of that. He was the only person I had over there who was dead. And he showed up and, oh my goodness, his face was just so glowy and his eyes were just glowing with light, almost like the angels. They were more light than eyes. And he just beamed at me, communicated telepathically, and I felt loved and safe. There was someone I knew, someone who loved me, who'd always tried to make a connection with me, even when I was a kid. And he didn't look like the 75-year-old man who had leukemia at the end. He was much younger. At some point, he asked me if I wanted to continue on to that light of God. And I said, definitely. <laughs> you know, like my soul was like, there's more to this. Yes. I'm going there. <laughs> and I'm like, you're not holding me back. Yeah. I'm going to go meet God. And what I didn't expect though, is like people's prayers were trying to pull me back. And I was almost irritated. I was like, okay, I know you love me. Okay. But I'm, I'm going to go meet God guys. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> and there's, there's, no comparison and you'll be fine. I'll be fine. They told me I'm coming back, but I've got only so much time and God's right over there. And so God was like this light that was beckoning to me. And the closer I got, the more love I felt, you know, there's a, a friend of mine who said, maybe all of psychology can be boiled down to self-love and self-compassion. And what I felt in just waves of energy was everything that I thought was wrong with me, any way that I had been abused, any way that I had been neglected. Instead, I was just poured with love. I was just given so much love to heal all of that. So any wound on heaven, any wound on earth has a an opposite in, in that realm. You know, like there is a filling up of love. And 
and that's why so many people, the closer they get to that love, they realize it'll be absent here. So anything that you want, you want for nothing. You're just perfect. You're loved. You're a child of God. You're, you're safe. You're free. You're happy. Why would you want to come back? <laughs> so of course I didn't want to come back, you know, and I, I know that there are lots of loving families and people who love each other very much. And people have to remember that I had a difficult childhood. And so there wasn't a strong need to return to anyone. Um, but I know that some people even, and this is hard for people to understand, people with beautiful, loving families still feel that love of God and sometimes don't want to come back because it's that powerful. It's that amazing. And I know that's hard for people to grasp, but but I think the good news is we all get to feel that <laughs> you know, like that's our true home is that spiritual realm of great, great love. At some point I was stopped and I felt like God or creator, whatever you want to call it, intelligence, divine intelligence talks in metaphors, but it made sense to me. So what near-death experiences often are to, to other people is they look up and go, why are they, do they vary so much? Or what, what is this about? But it's speaking to that person's soul. So God spoke to my soul in a way that made sense to me and showed me this river. And there were all these lights. Some of them were covered in darkness. Some of them were full of light. And I knew they were students and I knew I would return and teach not as a spiritual teacher, but as an actual teacher. And that's when it hit me, the reality of coming back to this earth. And I was like, no, <laughs> I, I came in, I knew my soul came in as somewhat of a feminist, you know, wanted to break through boundaries of what women have done in the past. And teachers seemed like such a stereotypical job and there wasn't any money in it. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. And God almost laughed at me. And I felt as if my soul was crunched up kind of like a softball and just like hurled through this darkness back into my body. <laughs> and I was like, whoo, I just got taught a lesson there. So, you know, this darkness just enveloped me as I was back in my body and I did not like it. But I was so aware of this experience. I know some people struggle to remember it. I didn't even struggle the first moments out of anesthesia. I knew what had happened to me and I could not wait to talk about it. Oh my gosh, Trisha, you've got such an amazing way of sharing your story. You've just taken us right there. I've got tears in my eyes. It's so, so very beautiful and wonderful. Before we move on to the next part of your story, I just want to pick up on a, on a few points. I recently interviewed Rob Gentile and I know you're going to interview him and he's got he's a heart transplant survivor and he's had two near-death experiences and one of the threads that is common to both of your stories but also common to so many of these near-death experiences and also to stories of seeing ghosts and having those spiritual experiences which I have a background in interviewing people with that one common thread among all of those is this background of neglect abuse suffering that these people experience. And it seems to be, it's not in every case, but gosh, it's prominent. And the experience just seems like such a mercy, like such a beautiful gift. What thoughts do you have about that, about the role of suffering in, often it is in childhood, and then I these have, experiences? 
I have a lot of thoughts about it. So I, one of the reasons I, I wrote my book was to support other trauma survivors in telling their spiritual experiences. Cause I feel like there's a lot of people who get shamed for having an amazing spiritual experience and then still experiencing domestic violence or rape or, you know, or, or child abuse or continued child abuse, you know, like what I think is there's a leaving pattern in some people say you experience sexual trauma or physical extreme physical violence as a kid. A lot of times you leave your body, you have an out of body experience and you feel safer outside of your body than in your body. And that teaches you, Oh, I can do this. And so a lot of people who have trauma as children or neglect drown, or they have some kind of physical ailment or something that if you think about childhood in the ease, well, a lot of times there's neglect or abuse, you know, like that's, that's why they have a near-death experience. And if you think of trauma without the near-death experience, you're going to leave your body a lot of times. And so I think there's a researcher, I'll look up that book when you post this, um, but there's a pattern called the leaving pattern and people who have either a trauma between birth and two years old, and I'm not going to go into what mine was, but I am aware that I had a a trauma before birth and um, that sets someone up to never feel safe here, to never want to connect to their body. And even though I was an agnostic, um, I was very creative. I was studying poetry, you know, I was like lost in images and writing and, and drank too much as a way to escape, honestly, too, you know, drugs and alcohol are another Mm -hmm. way that people self-medicate through trauma. Yeah. That's also a common thread, isn't it? And I think of that, you know, that old show medium with Patricia Arquette and, and you'd see her having the beer, you know, after a long day and she's trying to block that out. Yeah, so yeah. that is that that's definitely common too. So let's go back to your story. So your first thought when you returned to physical consciousness, you you talked about that darkness that enveloped you. There's a great line again, and I am going to quote your book, which is Angels in the OR. Amazing book. I love the line that you say there. I realized I had felt more alive while dead. Yeah, yeah, it's ironic. <laughs> this body was awful to come back to because, of course, they had morphine running through me, and you know it was like very painful. I was quickly put in a body cast. But what I realized, even with all that medication pouring through my body, I realized that I didn't end like where my skin ended anymore. That my aura stretched out about eight feet, and I felt like I had awareness like that far outside of my body. So as soon as someone, a nurse or a doctor or a family member would walk into my field, I felt like I understood them at a deeper level. Like I maybe was more intuitive than I'd ever been uh, because I, I had been so concerned about myself. And then suddenly I was like, why is that person worried about this? What are they doing? Why are they judgmental? What do you feel like? <laughs> There's all these thoughts that I had about people. But I did ask my surgeon if I had died. And she said that she thought she lost me for a couple of minutes. But I also was intuitive enough to pick up on the fact that she was very uncomfortable talking about this. This was not what she wanted to discuss. And I knew we weren't going to get very far uh, in any kind of discussion. It was almost like she was telepathically sending me this message like if you keep talking about this I'm gonna have to you know call in a psychologist <laughs> and I was like uh-uh <laughs> no you're not <laughs> this is real 
And so what happened next? And also tell us about how you were physically because your body went through an immense trauma and there was a very long period of recovery for you, very arduous. Yeah, I was in ICU for three days. So I, I completely crushed uh, three mid um, vertebrae. They were just gone. So they had to rebuild the bone and they had to take bone from my hip. And at that time in 94, they put in big Harrington rods that attached uh, to the vertebrae above and below. And then there's a long rod that goes down my back. Now I do yoga for health. And this is a new thing during the pandemic. And I literally have to explain to some people, I'm never going to do camel. I'm never going to do back bend. You know, I will do everything I can, but my back is mostly straight. I have really good posture. It's impossible to slump because there's this, you know, huge metal rod running through my back, which which of course causes pain and which, you know, I've found miracle cures and helps for other degenerative discs because you, you know, you put that amount of strain on one part of your back and the lower and the upper, you know, vertebrae are going to suffer a little bit more because there's more strain. So yeah, the internal injuries, they didn't quite know what to do with. And that was the cause of death. I had bled to death on the operating table. So they were cauterizing veins and really just trying to get blood back in, into me. And I had three blood transfusions after the surgery. And then I began to feel somewhat, you know, better, but, but I, no, I was in enormous amounts of pain. Um, it felt like a steel rod. Cause that's what had happened had just been stuck into my spine. I ended up, and I feel like this was a gift from the angels because they told me this, I started communicating with angels very quickly you know, after I left the hospital and I was no longer on morphine, I didn't feel them. And they were right there. And they, they said, we're not going to let you take painkillers because you might get addicted to them. And you're going to learn to walk through this pain that you're feeling and you're going to, it's going to teach you how to deal with pain for the rest of your life. And I was mad because as you can imagine, this was a month of the most horrific pain imaginable. I mean, I felt like the little mermaid, just like, you know, I'd take one step to the bathroom and I'm like, I can't walk. This hurts so bad. I'm walking on, on swords and I'd feel this enormous pain just rushing through every part of my body. But what I learned is that I could lay in bed and I could meditate. And I could get outside of my body and I could go back to not fully to the light of God, but I could float around in those stars. I could feel a little bit of that light and meditation. And I could definitely feel the angels continuing to send me light and healing. And, you know, it was a good four weeks of enormous pain and not sleeping sometimes very well and sleeping in the daytime. But I learned that I can live with pain, you know, that I could survive that. And I also knew, and I think when people take painkillers, they do themselves a disservice. Maybe you need it for a couple of days after a surgery or a week, but you need to feel what your body is, is feeling so that you know you're improving and you don't need to push too hard at the gym because you're on a painkiller and then realize you hurt yourself again. So I knew exactly what my body could do it could barely walk. <laughs> so I, I walked to the mailbox and then I walked halfway down the street. And then one day I finally made it to the end of the street. And it was like this huge celebration of, of great joy that, you know, now my feet could carry me this far and then I could not stand up on my toes. And then eventually I could stand up on my toes, but it was a, 
it was a long process, four months of physical uh, recovery in a body cast. And if you're familiar with Texas, we're a very hot climate. So this was the summer months. So I was in a body cast in the, the hottest 100 degree weather you can imagine. I cannot imagine really. But the angels that you had now this new connection with, I wonder if prior to your experience, you ever had any sort of experience that was of that nature or ever saw or experienced an angel before? Never an angel. They were a shock. So I was raised religious. And as a little kid, as a five and six year old, I would pray to Jesus and I would pray to God. And, and I did have this one miraculous moment in childhood where I had a faith crisis. And my mom said, well, why don't you go pray for something that you want. And since I was very poor, I very sincerely got on my knees and said, God, I want a hundred dollars. And I didn't say it out loud. And I was just like, I want a hundred dollars. And I was nine about to turn 10. My grandfather who I met in heaven died when I was 10. So on my 10th birthday, he gave me a $10 bill for every year of my life he gave me an envelope with a hundred dollars and it said happy birthday and he wrote me this long letter about how he'd always loved me and he was my link to faith which it's kind of funny or cute or or interesting that he's the one i saw in heaven but that was maybe the one moment of faith that i held on to that wow you can ask for something and receive it yes and the other thing that really stands out to me from your from your story so far, Tricia, is that this must have been such a humbling event because, as you said, you were 22, you were on this fast track to success. You knew that you were a smart young woman and that everything lay before you, and that you know you were going to you were going to fix your life yourself. You were very self reliant, and then suddenly you were literally stopped in your tracks. Yeah, you know, this is the way I look at it. Life is kind of a mourning and grieving process. And most people get to stay in denial till about 35 or 40. <laughs> like, they, they, I'm never going to die, you know. And I, I went through all the stages of grief at 22, you know, I and, and acceptance. I accepted death fully and didn't fear it and was at peace with it. And even, even though... You know, there were not a lot of young people my age who you could talk about mediumship or psychic abilities or talking to angels or any of these things. So I just framed it in my head as I crossed the veil. So I have some abilities because I I was over there in Deathland for a little bit. Now I'm back here in, in Earthland. And so now the veil is a little bit thin for me. And that's just the way I framed it. And I was like, but I've been given this mission and I've got to go teach and I'm just going to be the best teacher I can be. You know? and, and that's that. And I, I also had a little faith that, that surely God would reward me, if not financially, then in some other way for following his plan, you know, or God, God could be a woman, you know, the lights plan, whatever. And I have to say the rewards have been to my soul you know like mm -hmm. I feel blessed and I feel healed you know we talked about trauma but I feel like every trauma that I went through I got to face in a student and be there for that student and help them get through it and maybe be that that person who saw into a situation where no one saw into my situation as deeply I could at least see into someone else's mm. and, and I, 
I've often thought about trauma and our suffering in those terms too, Tricia, that it becomes kind of a bridge which we can cross to connect to another. And I don't know if that's the purpose of suffering, but certainly we can redeem it in a way by crossing that bridge to reach another as you do. And it's so so lovely how you describe each particular student being someone that you can help, but as you heal them, they heal you as well. Amazing. Yeah. We've had worse experiences than me too. I mean, that's the other humbling moment is we think all of our experiences because they're personal to us are so intense, but I've had students who are from Africa and were, you know, like one of the boys of Sudan who their entire family was murdered and they, you know, were harmed themselves and somehow made it to America. I've had students who've lost everyone in a drive-by shooting, you know, like I've, I've seen, you know, like deep trauma in people. Yes, you've seen it and you've experienced it, which you write about very candidly in your memoir, Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival and Transformation. And you write about how life was excruciatingly painful for you at times following your NDE, Tricia, and that was physically, emotionally and psychologically. Tell us about how life unfolded for you in the wake of the NDE. Yeah, the first really two years were kind of the honeymoon period. And I think a lot of the near-death experiencers feel that where they're just still floating on that light, you know, like they're having all these psychic flashes and connections. And I was so grateful just to walk and be alive and eat food and talk to people and see a bird in a tree. But one of the reasons, as I said earlier, that I wrote this book is I want empathic people or people who've just had a, a spiritual awakening and suddenly they're just so open to realize that you have to protect yourself too. Because if you think about this world and you think about sociopaths and, and narcissists and you know murderers and rapists, like who do they target? They target people who are wide open and trusting and loving and hey, you know, let me help you. And they target young people, you know, because they have less life experience. And so, you know, I became a target for a stalker. I became a target for a rapist and uh, I was overseas and there was no protection. You know, that's another element to the story. I went to teach overseas and this is common. You know, there, I met many Canadians and Australians and American teachers who'd been assaulted when they were teaching in South Korea. And this just happens in, in countries where there's no protection for foreigners. So I'm sure it happens to immigrants here in the United States. You know, they'll, they'll often probably be attacked or, or exploited or in some ways or thrown into human trafficking or, you know, there's just like unlimited things that can happen when someone doesn't have the protection of their country. So yeah, I was sexually assaulted overseas. And the worst part was not being able to get justice, knowing that I'd be laughed at by the police officers, knowing that nothing would help in this situation, that it was just something I was going to have to heal and I'm largely an optimist, so I thought, well, I have spiritual knowledge. I'm probably going to suffer, and I did for a few years. It was hard, you know, like the way I saw it, and I could see my energy fields was after sexual assault. It looked like my power center had just had a cannon that was blown through it, that literally I had no power. And so I was like, how do I get my power back? You know, and the thing that hit me was hiking the earth started to begin to heal me. So I had this traveling job when I returned to the States and I climbed mountains every weekend, you know, it was just out there, you know, whether it was rock climbing or just hiking and I'd set up on top of the mountain, like 
like the broken person that I was in many ways and go, God, I've been through so much. God, can you just give me strength? If I'm going to go teach these students, I need help. I need energy. I need you to support me. And it's almost as if the mountain, the trees, the sky, the earth would give me a little bit of support. And then and then I was still having spiritual experiences. So I would see spirits sometimes on these hikes and be reminded of, of certain things that I needed to know on my journey. And I felt it was an odd mix of mourning, but also deep, still spiritual connection. And I thought, I guess my purpose then is to show people how to heal from even this, that, you know, I, I, I'm not special that, you know, just because I had a near-death experience doesn't mean that I'd be protected from sexual assault. If one in seven women around the world experience it, you know, that, that I'm not, it's not that I manifested it. It's just that it happens, you know? Yeah. And that's a really, really valid point that you bring up in your book. And um, I highlighted it because, you know, we do live in this era of the well, the new age, it's not new anymore, but, you know, this idea that we we draw everything to ourselves. And as you point out in your book, that's just too narrow a view, too narrow a way to describe it. It's a much broader, expansive kind of co-collective agreement, I guess, that creates experience. And, and you know, and, and here's the thing about being a victim or not, I didn't put this in the book, I'm tough. Like there was a moment where I could have killed that guy, you know, like the, the, my rapist. And yet I thought, oh, I had enough sense to realize I could be locked up in a foreign country. They could not be down with this. You know, if this was America, maybe, you know, I'd as, as a white woman in America, you know, fighting off a, a rapist, I'd probably be fine. But in Korea, maybe not. And so there's layers to victimization. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm a tough person, you know, but, but you know. You touched on this uh, just a few minutes ago. Near-death experiences often report coming back with gifts. And in your case, your psychic abilities and mediumship were, they either sprung to life or were immensely amplified. What were some of your experiences? You mentioned some in nature there, Tricia. But I know you sensed and saw spirit. You had some extraordinarily lucid dreams. Tell us about how that side of life unfolded. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, I didn't question it too much, but um, there were so many different examples. And I think we talked in emails before that I've never really shared any of the ghost experiences, but I've had a few. <laughs> and, and so one, tell. <laughs> one of the ghost experiences was at graduate school and we were, uh, it was a low residency graduate school. So we'd get together for nine days and take a lot of classes, then go home and do everything online. So I was in a dorm room with two other women and we were packing up to go home and our phones had been charged all night, but all the batteries went down and the phone started erupting. Someone's laptop was totally powered off. It came on. So we saw the power on, then we saw Microsoft Word open up. Then we saw some letters typed on Microsoft Word. And I was like, whoa, we have a spirit here. It's time to send the spirit home. And I felt it. And I, I just opened up in my mind this portal of light. And I was like, if you want to go to the light, you'll be much happier. Go ahead and go and, and just showed it what I had experienced in my near-death experience. And I believe that that ghost went to the light. I felt that it was a trapped soul and that it was trying to get our attention in that place. And it, uh, you know, the, the two women kind of looked at me like, that was odd. Okay, let's go home. <laughs> but there was no denying that, I mean, we got the cold wind. We got, I mean, it was a, 
an intense spirit. This was, you know, nothing to play around with. Oh, wow. And and I love what you say about how your, your roommate said, okay, well, now we'll go home because I've often found that these most extraordinary things happen, but then it's not like Hollywood. We don't, you know, run for the hills or try and escape in the middle of the night. You just kind of get up at the next day and go, oh, well, and you just, you know, bring it in as part of your life and experience. So what other stories have you got for us? I know that you had some uh, dreams of your grandparents and your dad after he passed, Tricia, and he imparted some lessons as well from his new perspective. Yeah, so I never really considered myself a a medium. I would know when people were going to die, though. So like in my family, I would see, you know, like a great uncle. And I remember seeing him once and I told my grandmother, I was like, think he's gonna die soon she was like no no he's fine he's not and then then a week later she got a call he just had cancer and he went down really quickly and um you know he was dead within a month and then my grandmother's kind of funny she turned to me and she was like if you ever see that light in my eyes please don't tell me about it (laughs) So, (laughs) so you know there were just moments like that but when my father died in 2008 I knew that my soul would be attached to him in some way. And it was very, uh, I knew I could follow him into the afterlife because we were close. We were friends. Uh, We didn't have a great relationship growing up. He was somewhat neglectful. But once I became an adult, we just talked about my childhood and and became really close. And he was supportive, you know, throughout my twenties. And then, then he died when I was in my thirties. And when that happened, when he died, I wasn't beside him. I'd been really tired. I was teaching nine classes that semester, which is a ton of classes. And I went home to sleep and then I was going to see him that next morning. But in my dream, my grandparents, my, his mom, mom and his dad showed up and they're like, we were with him when he transitioned all is well, it's fine. You know, he was not alone. We love you. And it was one of those contact dreams that everyone knows the difference between a a dream that's just full of randomness and where you just feel hugged and loved and in that light. And that was the kind of dream. My grandparents were there. And then I looked at my phone and sure enough, my father had died. And so they prepared me before I even looked at my phone. And then I couldn't wait to feel my father in a dream. And he did come to me pretty quickly in different ways. But one of them was to just assure me that Uh, he had brain cancer and he, he let me know that even though I wasn't with him all the time, he just used up his energy when I was there and slept a lot of the time when I wasn't. And just to make me feel better, whether it's true or not, he's the type of person who would want me to feel good and to feel like I did everything I could. And so I felt his love from the other side and the relationship really evolved, you know, like I watched him through time what he experienced in the afterlife. And there's a book called The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. And I read that much later and I was like, wow, she really did pick up on some of what her brother experienced because my father was a little bit similar to her brother. And there were some things that were quite similar. He loved the freedom. He loved knowing everything that there is to know about the cosmos and aliens and other worlds. And, you know, he got really far out there into that expansiveness and that oneness at different times. And then other times I could feel him 
as somewhat like my father's same personality. Like he would make jokes as I was writing the book. He was like, see, I'm living forever. <laughs> you, know, like, you can't shut me up, you know, because he was a big extrovert. <laughs> and so he would come through, but, but he was also wiser as a spirit than as his, his, uh, his self. And another funny thing that I, you know, I have trouble with this one, but not trouble because a lot of people do reincarnate, but he's like, I'm definitely going to reincarnate. So my father is coming back. <laughs> and to know that, do you have any idea? Has he told you where or when? <laughs> oh, you know, I'm afraid. I just, there's like, I keep bargaining with him. Don't go. <laughs> but it would be great if like I'm this older lady and I get to meet a kid who remembers it. I'm like, you're my dad. It may <laughs> happen. Those videos, who knows? <laughs> Wow, what an amazing, you know, profound link that you have and and that idea of our relationships evolving even after the passing of the physical body. I love that idea. I explore it a lot in my interviews and so many of my guests have shared that kind of aspect and it's it's incredibly hopeful, isn't it? And it just shows that our connections just uh, are so much more than we can ever imagine. And even prior to your, then on the eve of your accident, Trisha, your your parents, that you described this in the book, that they they had nightmares. They were calling out. You could hear them. They were calling out. No, no. It's as if they had a premonition. Yeah. So I don't know if that was their soul. They didn't tell me about that, or if I was outside of time already. Um, I know though that my near death experience was predestined. You know, like this was going to happen. And I guess that, you know, some things are predestined and some are just circumstance, you know, and that, that's what, you know, the soul plan and, and a lot of the new age stuff that we're talking about. I think we, we pick overall themes, you know, like, and, and one of the themes for me was being an artist and a writer and, you know, just that was important to my soul. Another theme was somehow, and I knew it even as a child, this child who was religious, I had this weird but I had this vision of myself in my 60s with long white hair and I lived somewhere like Sedona and I was just this mystical person you know this very spiritual mystical person who just you know kind of lived mostly in this realm of spirit and I remember thinking that as a child going that's a weird place to that's <laughs> you know is that my higher self or is that my you know myself at the end of my life and just kind of let it go but I think there was a plan for me to be initiated into spirituality at some point, you know, whether it was a tough initiation, uh, I think it could have been many things. I think there was this marker in my life where I was, I got myself together and was running. So that was free will and a choice. I could have kept doing drugs and maybe I would have had some episode and had to go into rehab or maybe I would have died. Or maybe, but there was something that was going to change in my life. What an astounding vision to have as a child. Quite beautiful, isn't it? Do you feel like you're <laughs> heading towards that that vision? <laughs> yeah, and then sometimes I think I'm consciously heading toward it. You know, like I, <laughs> I, I think about getting a you know little container home and putting it on a plot of land somewhere in Arizona or somewhere where there's a hill and just you know just leading spiritual retreats and going to spiritual retreats and really you know like as even if I stay a professor, just really delving into healing through nature and through this connection to the other side. Healing is such a prominent theme in your book, uh, as the subtitle suggests. 
Tell us about what you learned about the ways that we truly heal. Yeah, so nature was the first way, you know, and that was one of the the lessons from the other side, remind them to go to nature. I felt like nature participates with our healing. If we meditate in nature, if we walk in nature, simple moments in nature replace trauma. So the more calm moments you have of playing with a dog, playing with your cat, walking in nature, the more peace you have. Meditation is also key. So I think you know, a meditation practice. A lot of people say they can't, they're too anxious. And I'm like, there's a million apps just get on, you know, insight timer, do guided meditations until you chip away, you know, at it. If that's all you can do is, is 10 minutes of guided meditations on YouTube or an app, do it until you achieve a greater peace and never give up, you know, just do it for the rest of your life, whether it's 10 minutes a day to begin with, or a practice any type of body work, yoga, tai chi, eating healthy, you know, all of the, it's, it's so cumulative. It's like the more you can do, the better off you are. And if it's yoga two times a day, meditation for 15 minutes, you know, talking with the therapist, working with the healer. And honestly, you know, there was about 10 years where I really sunk a lot of my resources into healing. And I feel privileged to do that. I'm not rich, but I was a professor. And so, you know, there, I did have health insurance, you know, I did have the ability to live very cheaply (laughs) and spend most of my resources on healing and health. And so, I think making yourself a priority and finding your own path is important, but I also think that sometimes people just don't know about certain healing modalities. So I tried to write about everything I did in case it helped someone else. Mm. Yeah. So there are are many ways in which you're a teacher. Sorry, go on, go on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But healing sites and sacred sites can be important too. That was a kind of a shocking awareness, but I'm very sensitive to energy and you know, the holy sites around the world. You had an amazing experience at a cathedral in Santa Fe, spiritually transformative experience, we could call it. Tell us about what happened there, speaking of holy sites. Yeah, so, you know, near-death experiencers are criticized here in America when we don't see Jesus in our near-death experience. And, you know, it's it's a it's a hard road, but, um, I did feel the presence of Jesus at that cathedral. And that shocked me. And I went there asking for healing for my neck because years of degeneration with the rods in my back had had affected the upper neck. And I was, I felt like a snake was constantly biting the back of my neck. And I had tried chiropractors. I had tried massage therapy and tried, you know, just everything that I knew to try cranial sacral therapy, rolfing, all kinds of things. And I just could not find an answer. And finally, what helped was uh, Nuka Chiropractics, which is a, it's a non-invasive and it only works on upper cervical. But that was, that was uh, after several trips to this healing cathedral, the healing cathedral brought me in contact with this healing spirit of Jesus. And I felt like I was a little child in the lap of Jesus. And it's not that I was converted to Christianity. It was just that I felt the spirit of Jesus. It was just, I felt loved and protected. And since I had grown up in Christianity and had these wounds, it was as if with my parents, it was as if all those were beginning to dissolve. And I needed to see the healing energy, the Christ consciousness different 
from religion and different from, you know, the judgment that I had faced growing up and different from any wounds that I had experienced as a kid. Just, I got to experience love through Christ, you know, in that, that moment. And, and really it was, it happened so that I would begin to heal at deeper levels, some emotional wounds and really start walking into full adulthood. If that makes sense. Like you can be. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And right. so until, until I healed more of those wounds, I didn't find the answer to my neck pain, but finally with the third trip to that cathedral, I found a new chiropractor the next day. And it was like zero amount of pain. The first first moment that's worked on me that is amazing and this is probably something for a whole separate conversation but the link between that spiritual healing and that physical healing as you say it didn't come about until you'd gone really deep in the healing of those emotional wounds and I think Louise Hay talks about it and I've read this that when you can't turn your neck you can't see other viewpoints. And I could not see, you know, my mother and I were at such odds politically, kind of the way it is in the United States. Uh, you know, like people can be so far away from one another that they both become self-righteous in their beliefs. And, and so we were both equally self-righteous instead of realizing that kindness and self-love and self-compassion and humanity and humility is really that middle ground, just being human. Um, with one another and realizing that you know all the information that you know may not translate into being a good human (laughs) like like there's a spiritual level up here which is beautiful which we can maybe as a culture just strive towards more more true unconditional love and you were also in that experience in the cathedral as you said you felt or heard be like a little child which of course ties back in with what you understood in your near-death experience. Yeah, and, and, you know, faith like a little child is important too. You know, I I don't want to discredit all of manifestation because I think some of it's true, but but when it's ego-driven, it really irritates me. Like, you know, does every person that has, you know, this dream deserve to have, you know, this, this, and this that suits their ego? Maybe not. You know, like I've still learned some hard lessons with, my book and being out there just because I'm an English professor and wrote a pretty good book doesn't mean I need to be a New York Times bestseller. You know, maybe it means I need to do exactly what I'm doing, which is really connecting with amazing people all over the world who talk to me and come to my workshops and meet me, you know, places like I'm so blessed to meet with people who who want to commune with me and who resonate with what I say, like what a blessing that is that yeah. you don't need to be a New York times bestseller to be busy. <laughs> you know, like I'm oh, busy. Goodness. I, yeah, I, I hear you there and I feel exactly the same about my interviews on my podcast. It is an immense blessing and you do have a podcast show as well, Trisha, and you know, the energy that it takes and the resources, but it, ultimately it is such a blessing, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, we're connected to people all over the world now. Like, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. It really is. And just um, before we move off the topic of healing, I just want to bring up one point that is that's in your book, and that you that is also a big part of your work, Tricia, and that is that true healing encompasses self love and service to others. So both of those things, and sometimes people might hear that and think, oh, those two things are opposed. 
but truly they're not. They're, they're facets of the one of the same thing, I guess. Tell us about self-love and service and how they do move us on into that true space of, of healing. Yeah, so self-love is important because most of the wounds that we have, uh, we are going to heal through being open to love from God, open to love from the universe and taking deep care of ourselves. It's not narcissism. It's just like, I'm going to take care of my wounds. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to have some chamomile tea. I'm not going to watch things that disturb me. I'm going to exercise even though I'm depressed because I know it makes me function better. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of myself so that I can be a better human being. And that's, that's self-love to me. It's like taking care of the self and doing the best possible things we can for ourselves. And then we're better in the classroom or better wherever we are, you know, like if I didn't take that care, how could I show? And that ultimately I was like, well, am I going to show my students that I'm a mess because I was sexually assaulted? Or am I going to show my students that I embrace everything that's happened to me? I've healed from it. I'm powerful. I'm here to support anyone who's gone through the same thing and we're going to heal together. And I'm going to tell you that you're okay because I'm okay. And that's what I wanted to be. And I was like, if you step out into the role of something, the energy supports you. So I may not have always felt like it. And and honestly, even writing this book, I, I don't talk about it too much, but I fainted. I literally just fainted on the floor when I wrote the scene about sexual assault. It was too much for me. I hadn't, I still, there were still some blocks and some wounds because it wasn't just me. I realized there's going to be a lot of women who are going to read this, who've experienced this, and they're not going to have a voice for it. And am I saying enough to help them? Am I going to traumatize them? Am I going to re-trigger, you know, their boat is this written correctly? Am I, am I shedding light to really heal this wound in society on some level with these words? And it was a lot of pressure and I fainted. And then I came out of it and I was like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> That's all I can do, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it's passing the torch sometimes. Maybe, you know, I pass the torch to someone else who continues to write about trauma and healing, but I'm going to do my best. Mm, the healing power of our stories. And, and yes, you bring up also that as an empath, we are anybody who feels that they're an empath is so very likely to not look after themselves and to perhaps reach a point in their 40s where they suddenly realise, oh, I have not taken care of myself. I've put everyone in front of me. And I, so I love how you share with us those, uh, I don't know, what, what do we call them, those strategies, I guess, that help yeah. us connect back to, to that, that self-love that will heal. Yeah, because we can get out of balance and everyone does. Like there were moments I gave a lot in the classroom. And I remember this one time I came home and I just, you know, I'd been on the phone with CPS and I'd been helping so many people. And I got home to my little dingy apartment and I opened my refrigerator and I, I looked at it and I was like, I want to eat everything in here. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> like I was that empty. <laughs> and I was like, that's not good. You better go run and then eat a bit. <laughs> but you know, there's the sense of like, if you give too much, you're just empty. So you really do have to fill yourself so that you are okay and grounded and, and you can give to others. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's so vital. So what's next for you, Tricia? What are you passionate about at this moment? 
there's so many things like I'll just list a bunch of things and I probably need to zone in on, on one but I have a um, meditation group you know we meet twice a month and I just get together with a zoom community that you know follows me on YouTube and love it love creating community I don't know where it's going but I, I just find that we need community right now at this time I love giving medium readings I still work as a full-time professor and the pandemic has been good for me in many ways because being online full-time has given me more time to do readings. I'm going to be returning to the classroom in the fall and I may not have as much time because I'll physically be in the classroom with students as opposed to, you know, grading online at a coffee shop for a few hours a day and making a few videos. It's not, it's different. And so there's, um, a yearning that I have that has nothing to do with spirituality. It has everything to do with writing. Since I've written Angels in the OR, I think I'm going to write a young adult novel. I have an idea and a beginning and it, it kind of surprised me. I wrote the first couple of chapters and it's about a young woman who sets with her grandmother. She's very close to her grandmother and has a spiritually transformative experience with her grandmother, but she's gifted with a lot of powers at, at a very young age at 15. And so she struggles uh, and it's kind of, you know, different because it's fiction. And I think sometimes you can say things in fiction and push uh, people in different ways that you couldn't push when you're telling your own story because you're judged, you know, as a person. But if you say it in fiction, then it's, it's up for, you know, entertainment, mm -hmm. but also it still can teach some spiritual lessons. Oh, I love the sound of that. And like you, I've got uh, a plan to write fiction. I haven't written fiction yet, and I'm excited about that too. Writing, Ooh. yeah. So we we will stay in touch, you and I. We will. I we might be writing buddies. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> so, Tricia, as we wind up today, I want to read one line from the end of your book. You, you write, the angels in the OR are realer to me than any reality in my physical existence. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I feel, you know, people talk about it in terms of upgrades and we're going into a 5D reality. I, I, don't, I don't know what all the terms are. I just know that the reality that I lived in before the near-death experience was pretty boring and that I saw behind that reality. And now I don't question it. And I think I wrote that line in the book because people keep saying, are you sure that wasn't a hallucination? Are you sure that wasn't a dream? And I'm saying, no, like, I know that's where I'm going. So this is where I am right now, but I know where I'm going when I die. And it's a knowing, it's not a and I know that sounds to some people kind of arrogant because people struggle with faith. But all I can say is a near-death experience is profound. You know, there, there are, you know, spiritually transformative experiences and awakenings and drug experiences and all kinds of things that people experience. But when you see your body dead and you're done with that body, it's kind of a different experience. You're just, you're disconnected from this life, this body. And it really gives you a break from being yourself, which is kind of odd. Like everything that I consider me, I was just done with, but I still continued in another realm. And so to me, that realm is where I'm going. And that's where it's just more real than this, this reality. 
And that's why I love to interview near-death experiences because I feel that you've got a particular story to share, uh, a message that in many ways is common and is also so beautifully varied. And I just love what you, you bring, Tricia, and your fellow NDEers to the world. God, we need it, that's for sure. What do you, on that note, what do you think is the most important thing you'd like our audience to take away from our conversation today? Oh, I always want people to feel less fear about death, you know, to take a little of what I say and, and then just to go to nature and to try to connect to your own intuition and try to let go of your own wounds in the same way. Even if it's a small wound, if you feel like, well, gosh, I've never experienced any of what she's experienced. We all are traumatized. We've all had our heart broken or gone through a divorce or, you know, lost a dear friend. We all have heart wounds that we can love ourselves through. And I just believe that if you sit in nature and you send love to your own heart and you open to love from that divine uh, consciousness and from your angels that you can speed up your healing. You don't have to suffer as long as you think. I, I feel like the next five years are gonna show us enormous breakthroughs in healing. So whether you're suffering from a physical pain or an emotional pain, have hope. Just have hope and have also certainty that we're all connected. And when we get these messages of love is all that matters, it's not like you have to be in love or go do a lot of great service, but it's don't harm anyone. Don't even in small ways, don't be rude to a server. Don't be rude. Just kindness is sometimes a way to put this into action easier than the idea of love. Be kind, you know, be kind to everyone that you interact with and you'll feel better about yourself at the end of your life. So simple yet so profoundly life-changing potentially. Thank you so much, Tricia. But before you go today, please tell the audience how they can buy your book and get in touch with you and learn more about you and your work. Yeah, so I'd love to contact, uh, be contacted by you on uh, my website, Tricia Barker, T-R-I-C-A-A, Barker, N-D-E. Uh, and I also interview a lot of, as you said, near-death experiencers on my YouTube channel. It's fun. We, we have some overlap with Rob coming up. So <laughs> I'll listen to your interview. And I'm always trying to just relate to near-death experiencers and talk more about that light, and that realm that we were in. So if you want to hear more stories of near-death experiencers, I do have a YouTube channel. And beyond that, uh, just any way you want to find my book, it's out there on Amazon, Angels in the OR. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tricia. It's such a delight to talk to you. I've followed your work for a while. You're a beautiful soul. I'm excited to see where your writing takes you and I'm excited to stay in touch with you. Thank you for coming on Spirit Sisters. Thank you. And I'm excited for your journey and your beautiful journey as well. I really feel like we're going to read each other's fiction books. <laughs> oh, yay. Can't wait. Oh, I need to get started first. <laughs> yeah, I need to write a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tricia. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story.
Thank you.